The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought against the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites' army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it The Lord is My Banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. So welcome to our next instalment of Exodus. And actually, this is the last one for for now. And in fact, Julia picks up the next bit uh, on Sunday morning in September when we <laughs> when we look at the Ten Commandments because that just sort of fitted into the middle of what we were doing. And what no. <laughs> I did say for a while. <laughs> It does give you, it does give you some opportunity. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So this is the last of this section. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all that you can teach us through your word, through stories that we heard long ago, but bring meaning to us today. Pray that you will teach us what you need us to learn. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
grumbling and complaining. They're just really normal things. And I'm sure I'm not alone in grumbling. So uh, here's some examples. But for all the money that people spend on holidays, wouldn't you think that they might enjoy them? But I found some comments from some travellers. Here's just what they said to their travel agents. On my holiday to India, I was disgusted to find that almost every restaurant served curry. I don't like spicy food at all. Or a guest at Novotel in Australia complained that his soup was too thick. He was slurping gravy. Following a trip to a theme park, one angry woman complained the sun was so hot it melted her ice cream. <laughs> and an air traveller voiced her disapproval of all the clouds in the sky that ruined her children's game of I spy. <laughs> what do you do when things don't go the way you expect? Last week, Matthew helped us look how God provided the Israelites with manna and quail to eat. And in chapter 17, we'll see what happens when they encounter more problems. I'm going to look at four sections. God, our guide, God, our thirst quencher, God, our partner, and God, our banner. So firstly, God, our guide. God's led the Israelites out of Egypt. And he's parted the waters. They've crossed the Red Sea and escaped. The Egyptian army have been drowned. And then he provided manna and quail for the Israelites. And in chapter 17, verse 1, which is on page 75, if you've not got it open, we're told that God is still guiding them, taking them from place to place, as the Lord commanded. So now he's led them to camp out in the desert where they have no water. Now that's not good. Google the source of all answers, tells me you can probably survive three weeks without food but only one week without water. So it's a real problem, something that's got to be resolved. So what do they do? They turn to God, who'd just organised their daily rations and asked him where the water was. No, they went and complained to Moses. Now, in chapter 16, verse 2, they'd gone to Moses accused him of bringing them out into the desert to starve. And this chapter, verse 3, they accuse him of bringing them out to die of thirst. It's a recurrent thing. They see their problem. They see the problem, but their response is to complain to Moses. And it doesn't read to me like they even expected that Moses could help them. How about us? We can look back over our lives and see where God's provided for us. We can see how he knows what we need. But too often, prayer and God aren't our first response because we think we can sort things or that somebody else should be getting things organised. And it can take a while for us to turn to God and involve him in the problem. Poor Moses. He's exasperated with the people and he tells God so. He says, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. This is not a good place to be. People are angry with Moses. Moses is exasperated with the people. 
is this a time for him to cut his losses, make his way to the promised land on his own? What's going on? We've mentioned before that as God rescued the Israelites, he wasn't only rescuing them and taking them to the promised land, but he was also forming them into a people, into his people. They'd been slaves in Egypt for generations, following instructions, doing as they were told. Now they're free, but they need to learn how to live with that freedom, how to organise things, how to make decisions. When I was a student, which is a long time ago, within my course, I had a unit called Organisation Studies, which was of management theory stuff. But one thing that's always stayed with me is Tuckman's stages of group development, which sounds a bit bad, but it's, it makes a lot of sense in thinking about our society and about what was going on with the Israelites. It might even be why we don't like our growth groups being messed about with and, and things, because there's, there's a lot of logic in, in this. The theory says that groups go through stages in their development and so that a group can grow and face challenges, solve problems, find solutions and deliver results, every stage is necessary and inevitable. So there's the stages. Forming, which is about excited anticipation and might be a bit of anxiety. And then storming, when reality sets in and brings frustration and disagreements. Norming, sorting out some shared goals and cohesion, and then performing teamwork and leadership. So maybe as God's forming his people, they're working out the relationships, and all this complaining, grumbling, whining, whinging is part of their storming behavior and related to being part of relationship with each other and with Moses and with God and working out quite how they all work together. So if we apply this theory directly to the story of Exodus so far, firstly, they've had a great forming process. They had excitement, anticipation, they experienced the power of God, the angel of death passed over the houses, they were free, they left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. And then in Exodus chapter 15, they express that exhilaration in the song of Miriam and Moses as they praised God. What a great start. But then in the model, the next phase, storming. And in chapter 16 and 17, we see reality kicking in. They don't have bread. They don't have meat. Now they don't have water. They grumble and complain and want to turn back. But then over the next few chapters and maybe even the second half of the chapter tonight, the pattern changes. And they start to go through the norming phase, working out shared goals for how they're going to live together, Ten Commandments. Ready for the performing phase at the end, when they're finally ready to enter the promised land and sort out things like dividing land, settling down, things that are just too far away from where they are now. Maybe that's why. It takes 40 years for them to work through all these phases. So it's easy to look at the Israelites and ask, why don't they trust God after all is done for them? But 
God's brought them this way to a camp with no water. When things aren't going well, we find it difficult to believe that God's present. We find it hard to believe that God would lead his people or his church into times and circumstances of difficulty. When we think like that, we're no different to the Israelites. We can start to doubt God's presence and power when the going gets tough. We see everything that God does, but we just forget. We know we should turn to God, but we try and fix things ourselves without asking God for help and advice. And then moving on to verses 5 to 7, God the thirst quencher. So what does God do about this problem? People demand water, and God, responding with grace and love, doesn't say anything about their lack of faith, but he responds to their human needs, because God's faithful, and he responds out of his grace and love. So in verse 5 and 6 we see, Moses has to take the staff, the one that he'd already used to strike the Nile and do various other things with. It's an important staff. And in the sight of the elders, he's got to strike the rock and water will come out. Paul talks about this in chapter 10 of his first letter to the Corinthians. In verse 4, Paul tells us that the rock was Christ. In the last few months, as we've thought about how God has placed us here in Broadgate, they've shown us how the parish is shaped like a jug. And how that jug will only be any use if we're constantly being refilled by the Holy Spirit so we can be poured out to refresh others. I've not got the jug, the bucket and the hose pipe, but many of you have seen that. When Jesus talks to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he says to the woman, Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God provides, but we need to thirst for him. When Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in John 7, 37 to 38, he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. God provides, but we need to drink from him. There would have been no point in God releasing water from the rock if the people hadn't then drunk it. And we need to drink like polite people. Not like polite people, not having a little sip. Little sip, not a lot. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but thirsty people, we, we really need to refresh ourselves with God's Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> did it down my back. Because that's how we need to be. We need to be totally open to being refreshed by God. And 
And then having solved the water crisis, the next issue they face is the, the arrival of the Amalekites in verses 8 to 14. If you were here when we looked at chapter 13 and 14, four weeks ago it was me, if you need to remember, uh, we saw how God had led the people, not by the obvious route round the coast, but by this really circuitous route, because it avoided them having to fight with the Philistines. But now, though they're on the path that God's taking them, right back to verse 1, they are attacked by the Amalekites. This is the first time they've had trouble from others. They've had trouble within themselves, but now they've got outside forces. And this time, God hasn't said, oh, go this way and just avoid it. So, who are these Amalekites? Remember back when we were going through Genesis? In Genesis 27, when Isaac was dying, Esau, the materialistic brother, gave up his birthright for a plate of stew. And the Amalekites are connected, descended, intermarried with the tribe of Esau. So that tension between Jacob, looking to the future, I want the birthright and the promises, and Esau, who's looking at what can I have now, was still around then and still around today. Verse 9 says that Moses tells Joshua, sort out some men and go off and fight, whilst he will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God the one that he'd used to strike the rock to get the water, which is the one that he'd used to strike the Nile. Well, either that's a strange picture. What's the point of standing about with your hands in the air when there's fighting to be done? Or maybe it's a great picture of people using their gifts and talents of multi-generational church. This is the first time we meet Joshua, who here is a young man and will eventually go on to take the people into the promised land. Between Joshua and Moses, they're going to fight and pray. But God doesn't step in and deal with the Amalekites for them. He involves them in sorting out the problem whilst he supports them. And it's no different for us. God doesn't take over our lives and sort out all our problems and issues. Come to faith and everything will be fine. In fact, I was thinking you only have to look at our Iranian brothers. Come to faith and just get a whole heap of issues and problems in your life. But it, it sort of, oh, why doesn't God fix this? Why doesn't God sort that out? But when we invite God in to help us, we fight with him. So it's a great picture. The young men are fighting. The old men, Moses, Aaron and Hur, are on top of the mountain with Moses raising his hands in prayer. On their weekend away earlier this year, the men looked at 1 Timothy 2 verse 8 and what it means to lift up holy hands in prayer. Now, I can't lift my arms up very long at all. I'm not going to even try. Frozen shoulders are getting better, but I still can't really do it. And maybe you're better at it than me. But this picture of Moses 
is a great prayer warrior. He's there lifting up his hands for so long that they have to find a rock for him to sit on. And then they have to hold his arms up for him. It doesn't say how long he's there. But it says until sunset, so I take it that means at least one day, but it might be two days or it's days, it's, it's at least a whole day. But we find it hard to set aside time to pray, even when we know how important it is. Our attention wanders, we, we just have to go and sort something out. But Moses keeps going. We've been focusing on prayer this year, and we have so many opportunities for prayer. Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. Sunday morning in the service. Sunday evening, about 10 to 6. Sunday evening in the service. Monday morning, county hall. Our Monday prayer meetings. Tuesday at Crossgate. Wednesday here. And then there's all the prayer in the growth groups and our own prayer. We can't say we don't have opportunities to pray, but... Encouraging as that is, maybe it's just me, but we need to learn to be persistent in prayer. Aaron and Moses and her were old. It didn't stop them praying. And though they couldn't get involved in the physical battle, they were crucial in fighting the spiritual, spiritual battle. So what can we do? Where does God call us? Now, a few people, about four, uh, might remember Nellie Wilson. She's an, she died about, just after Anna was born. <laughs> she was old, she was deaf. But when she felt she got nothing to offer, I really remember Pat pointing out to her that Nellie sat in a house and prayed for missionaries and how important that was, that she prayed. And we can see in this picture of Moses that Prayer was hard work. So how long do we pray about something? Here, Moses lifted up his arms until it was done, until sunset, when in verse 13, Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Are you involved in fighting the battles? Are you praying for breakthrough? For our parish? For our school? For the troubled young people and their families? Am I? And are we persistent? And then finally, God our banner. God makes a promise that he will one day blot out from under heaven the name of Amalek, the god of the Amalekites. But Moses can see that because of the battle they've just had, the battles with the Amalekites will not cease and throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, they have more and more battles. They keep meeting the Amalekites because often, you know, look at the history of this country, England and France, how many battles there were throughout history because one group wins and then the other one came back. So Moses could see what would happen. And he builds an altar, and he calls it Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner. We often think of a banner or an emblem as being something that people gather around. But when I was looking into this, the commentaries were saying that 
It's actually about, in a battle, the enemy sees the emblem and the enemy runs. So God is our banner. And when the enemy sees that banner over us, he knows to run. The troubles that we'll face are many. We don't know where God will lead us or what battles we'll face. But the only way we can enter the battle and know that we can win is with the Lord as our banner. So, are we living as God's people? With God as our guide, even when the route makes no sense at all. Drinking deeply and allowing God to quench our thirst. Acknowledging that God won't fix everything for us, but we have to be involved in fighting with him and with God as our banner. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you were there with Moses, that you were there throughout all the things that happened and that you God, are the banner. We pray that over this church you will be our banner through the things that we face in this neighbourhood and the things we want to be drawn to pray for. We will have you as our banner and that with you we will see your kingdom break through. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>